Hey friend, this is Julie Slattery, and I'm so glad you've joined me for today's Java with Julie episode. This podcast is a production of Authentic Intimacy, a ministry dedicated to reclaiming God's design for sexuality. Our topic today is a huge barrier when it comes to experiencing authentic intimacy and the freedom that God has given us in our sexuality. We're going to talk about shame, what it is, how it plays out in our lives and in our marriages. But before we head to the coffee shop, I want to remind you to please hit that subscribe button in your podcast app. This helps Java with Julie get more visibility and your app will also deliver every new episode right to you as soon as they become available. Thanks so much for supporting us in this way. So my guest today is no stranger to Java with Julie. Her name is Dr. Debbie Grubenik. She's someone who's an expert in trauma and how we heal from traumatic experiences. Debbie has devoted her professional life to helping traumatized children and their parents. She's spent decades working within the foster care system, meeting with parents in her private practice, and teaching trauma-informed care. In our conversation today, Debbie and I are going to talk about some common responses to shame, how you can help a loved one who's battled with shame, and Debbie's going to help me answer emails that you sent us, specifically about how shame is impacting your marriage. Now, here's my conversation with Dr. Debbie Grabenik. Debbie, thanks so much for joining me again on Java with Julie. Every time we have a conversation, I learn something. <laughs> and so I feel like I selfishly do these interviews just so I can keep learning and then everybody else gets to listen. Mm-hmm. And one topic that I feel like we've talked around but never directly addressed is the idea of shame. And I think within the last 10 years or so, shame has become more something that we're aware of in our society through Brene Brown and others who have done research on this and been speaking on it. Mm -hmm. But how would you describe shame? If somebody just said, how do you define shame? What is it? Where would you start? Well, I'm a trained Brene Brown facilitator, so I tend to gravitate towards the the truths that she teaches that have risen out of research. Mm -hmm. I love research and being able to do that. I think for me that the shame really does come from that ability to not, to see ourselves as not being enough. And shame, again, is not about what we did, it's about who we are. And it's an overwhelming sense. And you know, I often say that our greatest need that God created us to do is to be seen and heard. Well, shame says, don't see me, don't hear me, because I don't think I'm worthy. And so it cuts us off. I'm going right into it, yeah, Julie. I'm going right dive, into that's what That's good. It, we'll dive right, what, what, right into uh, the deep end. What, yes, because I always learn from you as well. But I look at that shame is what keeps us, you know, internalized. It keeps us from connecting. It, it shuts us down. Mm-hmm. And so So for me, looking at our society right now, I look at the things that particularly women struggle with, and the shame is about I'm not thin enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not rich enough, I'm not Pinterest enough. (laughs) You know, you get ready for a birthday party and you look at all the things on Pinterest and you're like, oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. So we start saying, I'm not enough, which is counter to what God's plan is for us because He created us as enough. And so I think that that's probably the basic understanding, basic definition of shame. Mm. So you talk about how God's plan for us is that he created us as enough. Mm-hmm. But in reality, shame is part of our fallen condition. 
Yes. And that I look at our society that wants to erase all sense of shame. Mm-hmm. But if we look at scripture, there is a place for shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's shame that brings us to the cross. It's shame that brings us to repentance mm-hmm. to say, I'm not enough. I need mm-hmm. Jesus, mm-hmm. I need his redemption. So how do we find that balance of, you know, and is there balance of shame is our reality before a holy God, but it's not where he wants us to stay? Well, I always think about confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. And so I think that I look at it's a healthy guilt that God puts on our hearts so that we confess and that we can own up to the fact that we've fallen short. We all have fallen short. I don't think he wants us to live that saying that we're not enough because he provided the way for us to be enough. He provided the Holy Spirit to be our bridge between who we are and a holy almighty God. And I don't know about you, but that excites me because I have access. I don't have to go through a medium. I am enough just as he created. And I must be current, confessing sin, trying to live a holy life, and trusting Him in the process. Mm-hmm. So it does excite me because I yes. know God, but it also makes me very sad that people that don't know God are trying to erase shame, you know, solely through reading books and mm-hmm. therapy, mm-hmm. Um, where if we believe what the Bible says is true. There's no way of truly erasing our shame except through a relationship with Christ, which gives us reason why sharing our faith is so important. I totally agree. And I think it's looking at that positionally who I am in Christ helps me combat my shame. However, I'd like to, Julian, I know that you're probably okay with this. Mm-hmm. I'd like to share my own story about what God did in my life about a year and a half ago. It was in August of last year. And I was at the Brene Brown training and, you know, you always enter in and I'm going, okay, I'm a Christian and I, I want to keep God's word at the foremost and not do anything contrary. And I really felt like the Holy Spirit speak to me. And I've never understood why I was so driven and I associated my sense of esteem and who I am with what I accomplished. Mm -hmm. And I never understood why I had that burning in my belly. And I feel like the Holy Spirit downloaded into my spirit uh, just one August day in Texas, hot as blazes, and I was there and I felt like he spoke to me and said, because my mom was one of those that got pregnant in the 50s, Mm -hmm. and talk about shame. She -hmm. had to drop out of high school. She couldn't finish school. She never got her high school diploma. And she made the choice to have me, Mm -hmm. even though people told her to abort. She Mm -hmm. made the choice to have me. And I feel like the most of my life has been spent trying to be worthy mm. of all the shame she experienced. And so I went into my own shame story that I wasn't enough and that my mom gave up everything for me. And so I felt a lot of shame and didn't know it was shame. And then I felt shame because I was shamed. So it's a shame spiral and we get caught up in it. And I felt God just say, enough, Debbie, enough. You are created as you know the princess of Jesus here you are the bride of Christ you stand in the gap here and he lifted that shame from me and I just kind of went now I wish my mom were still around so I could say wow mom thanks you you know it's very emotional 
That's right. It's powerful. And I think that it's important that we allow people to talk about their shame without shaming them. Mm-hmm. Here I was, a pastor's wife. I know the Lord for a long time. I have a seminary degree, by golly. I'm a trained clinician, and I know the Lord in a very personal way. And I still felt shame have a, you know, a thrill stronghold in my life. Mm-hmm. And so I wouldn't say I'm quote, delivered, but I do say that I know and I'm not allowing shame to rule. I'm not allowing shame to control. And so it keeps me dependent on the Lord. I can go, okay, God, I feel myself gravitating towards that. And one of the things that we combat shame with is perfectionism. That's one of the ways we try to deal with shame is that if I'm good enough, if I'm perfect enough, if I look the part, if I'm a super Christian, that's one of the ways that we try to combat shame. One of the other ways is numbing. I'm going to eat too much. I'm going to try to um, numb out on social media. I'm going to numb so that I don't feel the shame. And I'm here to say that we really need to feel, acknowledge that shame, and then allow the Lord to put it in place, perspective, and and he can do that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, sorry. A no, don't, have, don't ever apologize. Um, that's powerful. I, yeah, a couple of things from what you shared. First mm-hmm. of all, I love that you keep growing, and we all yes. need to keep growing. And sometimes we think we're going somewhere or reading a book for somebody else, and God says, no, this is oh for you. Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, but the other thing is, I think what you identified in your own heart, and is true of so many of us, a lot of times our shame has nothing to do with sin. Right. It's it's not godly conviction where God is saying that you need to confess this. It's rooted in who society says we should be. Right. Or our, right. our story uh, of, I mean, your story is beautiful that your, your teenage mom sacrificed so much to raise you. It's a story of love and sacrifice, but yet it was rewritten for you as something that was shameful. Um, so, And I think that's true of a lot of us. The things mm-hmm. we're struggling with mm-hmm. may not be sin. Uh, it might have been told us that way, but it really is our position of who we are. Mm-hmm. And so thanks for Absolutely. sharing that. Absolutely. You know, I think shame also, a component of shame that we don't really look at, and you attend, you really alluded to it, it's who we think we're supposed to be. And, you know, I thought I was supposed to be all of this to be worthy and to overaccomplish. And gosh, do you know what a treadmill that is to be on? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just stayed on it and stayed on it. And I see so many of my friends doing the same thing. If I'm perfect enough, if I'm slim enough, if I'm, you know, active enough, if I'm smart enough, if I'm successful enough. And it's all by the world's standards. That's not God, how he defines it. That's not how he looks at us. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was like very freeing. And so I am very open to sharing that shame story because so many people relate to that piece that we get on that treadmill of perfectionism and achievement or we go in the numbing or we do that and Brene Brown calls it foreboding joy. We lean into and we're just looking for the next you know, shoot a drop. Mm -hmm. We start looking for, you know, what's going to happen next, you know, do, 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 that kind of thing. And all of those things keep us from really, you know, trusting God to, to work through and to let us see what's real 
what's real because sometimes like you said there's sin that needs to be confessed and i think that there was some things i had to go before the lord prostate and just go god i've fallen so short and i don't want to live in this place mm. you know where shame really gets me personally is when i see myself projecting it into my relationships mm. and uh, i'm afraid of being ashamed of what somebody else is doing my husband is doing or my kids are doing or my family is doing where you want to start then controlling everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so shame doesn't just stay within our own hearts. It plays out in our marriages and in our parenting and in our friendships and in our church relationships where we become legalistic. And you know, part of, I think, understanding all this, we can talk about it from a spiritual perspective, but the whole purpose of you going to Brene Brown workshop is that we're understanding more about what happens in our brain mm-hmm. that causes these behaviors? What have you learned about what actually is happening in our brains that keeps shame stuck? You know, shame is stored in the brain much like trauma. So it's stored in the emotional side of our brain, the right side of our brain. So it, can get to, it gets us stuck much like trauma does. And so it's when we can, and you know, um, she says something that I think is just brilliant. And she says that what shame needs to prosper and grow is silence, secrecy, and judgment. And what have we done in the church? We've been silent, we've been secretive, and we've been judging. Especially around sexual issues. Sexual issues, as a pastor's wife, and I never felt that I was good enough because I didn't do all those things I thought I was supposed to to do. Um, And I had a secular career, you know, so kind of some of those pieces. So think about that, silence, secrecy, and judgment, and what the environment that's hostile to shame is empathy. Mm. So people saying to me, wow, like you just did, you didn't even know you did it. And you did it. I share my shame story. I start crying. I make it, you know, get a little emotional and you just showed me empathy. And so then the shame dissipates because it can't thrive in the hostile environment of empathy. And so think about it. Um, we do something and you call me up and you say, Debbie, I, I just blew it. I just went off. I, you know, I said this, I did all this. And then I go, well, you know, we've been talking about this in our Bible study and you know, you should have prayed about that. Well, guess what happens? You're going to find, you're not going to want to talk to me probably ever again. Or I say, oh man, I feel that for you. And we just sit with you in it. Because I think that's how Jesus did. I think Jesus just showed up. Mm-hmm. He didn't start giving you the, you know, a five-page worksheet to do because you came to him with your sin. He said, I got you, you know? And, and so I think that the empathy that we can show really is what people need to hear. And we're so, we think we have to fix it. And really all we have to do is show up, be empathetic, be kind, be gracious, and God will change that heart. He'll mm-hmm. heal that. He'll mm-hmm. take care of it. Yeah, those relationships are a a big part of healing. Yes. Um, We do get a lot of questions at Authentic Intimacy that involve shame. Mm -hmm. Um, Shame from past sexual abuse, shame from wrong choices, and even shame from maybe some legalistic judgmental teaching in the church around sexuality. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to read a few of these questions and just we'll talk through them. Like how would this person process what they're going through. So here's one. 
My teen years were filled with self-harm, suicide attempts, and being with guys because it was easier than saying no, at least in the moment. Broken, torn, and battered, I would run away from things when life got too hard. Now I'm married, I have three beautiful children, and I want to leave my marriage. The guilt and shame from my past is constantly in the back of my mind. I've been married for five years, and I do not want to do another five years. I've often made the decision to walk out. Then after listening to a podcast, reading a blog, sharing with a friend or praying, I've come to the conclusion that God doesn't want me to leave my marriage. But I don't want to face my wounds. I know I need to bring them to Christ for healing. Where do I start? Yeah. Well, first of all, my heart just has an overwhelming sense of compassion. Mm -hmm. I wish that she knew what it was like to have somebody just walk with her right now and just let her be whatever she needs to be. If she needs to be ugly and spout off and say, you know, right now I can't stand my marriage, it, it would be safe. I wish that she had somebody that it was really safe to unpack that with, whether it's a therapist or it's a friend, a pastor, whomever. When I hear a story like that, where my brain immediately goes to is that she has unprocessed trauma and that often, and maybe even unprocessed grief because she wants to run. And that's our response to trauma, fight, flight, or freeze. And she's wanting to flight. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and what she'll find is that she'll recreate another situation where she'll want to run from it again. Yeah, it's, and, it's even and, interesting to me that she doesn't say anything negative about her husband. It's no. not, he's the problem. She's identifying, yes. I'm the problem. Yeah. My past is the problem, which is huge. It, that's significant. Great catch. And so what I do know is that only when we push through does the real healing come. And so staying the course, running the race, um, so many of the scriptures talk about that. And so what that looks like is really processing. And I would say sometimes talk therapy is not all that it it needs to be. Sometimes it's visceral. She may have some shame stored in her body. She may have some trauma stored in her body. And until she figures out how to get rid of that, how to process through it, there's some great therapeutic pieces out there that can help you with that. Or it can be by going and some people have found great relief from running, you know, and just God speaking to them and the bilateral stimulation of your legs hitting the pavement and releasing and discharging. Um, those kinds of things sometimes can be what helps. God can use anything and anyone. And I would say that she's not going to make it through by just sheer might here. Mm -hmm. She's going to need some help. And God can use a whole lot of a litany of different ways to do that. But she's definitely running. And so we got to figure out what is she running from? And part of it is what's she afraid of? Mm -hmm. What is there that's so fearful that she can't look at it? She wants to keep running. And I would imagine she probably has a history of running, running from people, running from herself, running from the Lord, running from her emotions. And so what is that about? And who prompted that that's the way to deal with something. Someone laid that track down in her brain. So I would want to do a little bit of digging there to, to help her see. I'm married to a runner. I'm married to someone who flights. You are. Yes, mm -hmm. I am. 41 years. And I've seen that when it gets, and, and we have miraculously stayed married 41 years. Miraculously. And I do believe that 
God helped him learn that the real joy comes when we stay and we push through. What was your role in that? Uh, let's say you are the one married to a runner, mm-hmm. and people run in all different ways. Sometimes they want to leave the marriage. Sometimes they act out sexually um, to say, yes. I want to get away. What is your role as a spouse in trying to invite your spouse to healing? I wish that I could say I was this spiritual giant and I was this just wonderful wife, when in reality, I believe I'm just really stubborn. And so he would leave and I would look at him and say, that's fine. You can leave as many times as you want, but I'm going to be right here when you get back. I'm not going anywhere. And I began saying that over and over and over. And it was everything he needed to hear. And it began to seep in to the point where he left less often. When I say leave, he'd leave for like hours at a time and go. And when it, when it would get tense and we would get into the real parts of living together and trying to craft a marriage, um, not he didn't abandon me or anything like that, but it was still leaving. And for a woman whose stability is very important, that leaving would undercut me. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, this isn't what I bargained for. Especially if you have abandonment issues. Exactly. And as a pastor's wife, and there wasn't anybody I could talk to. So my shame ran deep because I felt like I must have been doing something wrong. And how come I couldn't make my marriage work? And I just consistently showed up and he's told me had you not done that I don't think that we would have made it so I just I implicitly put that message into his spirit I'm not going anywhere I'm here for the long haul and he has lots of abandonment issues so it's the very thing he needed and God did that in me I wasn't wise enough to figure that out I had I had no clue and didn't really know what I was doing but somehow that stubborn piece of me that God design me, that's what made the difference. And so I think that if she could hear a message like that from her husband, we got this, we got this, I'm here, no matter what, I'm here, no matter what, we're going to do this together. That can be the difference. I love how you look at situations with these clinical eyes. (laughs) You know, when you can see the trauma, the Mm -hmm. way we respond to trauma, our fear. So often when we hear situations like this, we're only looking at the facts mm-hmm. and even the morality of it. Right. So, uh, right. so for example, this kind of relationship can get presented as my wife is totally unloving, or um, she's flirting with other guys, or it can get presented as my husband is looking at pornography whenever we have a fight. And uh, if we're only looking at those symptoms, we're like, well, then you should leave him, or he's a bad guy. And there are situations when we shouldn't be stubborn. And there are situations where we shouldn't say, I'm going to be here always because people are destructive. So how do you use discernment when you're working with with families, working with couples, and there are emotional, psychological trauma issues, but there truly is someone in this situation who's not safe. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Like somebody who can continually cheats on you right where do you say i'm going to meet your trauma needs and be there for you and where do you say enough is enough well first of all you don't ask easy questions (laughs) my job is to ask the hard questions all right for a for a morning uh here we are here i'll get you another cup of coffee i might need some more caffeine for that one 
You know, I'm glad you made a distinguishing there. So I was not suffering any harm. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we can still show up and say, I'm here and I'm going to stay here. And if there's harm or I'm not safe, we can have boundaries. So it might mean that I'm going to move out for a while or that you're going to move out for a while because I can't be in a situation where I'm emotionally or physically not safe or my children aren't safe. So I do think that we have to have very strong boundaries around that piece. I didn't experience that. And I'm not sure that maybe this question that you got, what she was experiencing that. Mm. I don't know. I do believe that that's part of getting some help is that I'm not thick in the weeds here. So I can look for the metaphor. I can look for the discernment. I can look for the greater meaning of what's happening rather than what just is presented. And I think that that's the benefit of getting help or having a friend that has that spirit of discernment, some wisdom, or one of your pastors we can't often see it very far because we're right there and we get stuck and then we're reactive. Mm -hmm. And when we're reactive, that just creates more shame um, of not thinking I'm good enough. And we get in that spiral and it's really hard to move out of it. Mm -hmm. So I hope that answers that a little bit. I think we always have to be looking at keeping safe and so while I'm not saying I'm a fan of divorce I think sometimes we have to have a boundary about you can't live here right now because this is not okay this behavior whether it's active alcoholism or it's you know a strong addiction to pornography we need we might need some interventions before we can safely live together Mm -hmm. again yeah, and it does require so much discernment. And it does. you do need wisdom of counselors, spiritual mm-hmm. counselors, mm-hmm. psychological yes. counselors. Um, because I've seen situations where people stay in a very toxic relationship mm-hmm. where they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And I've seen other situations where people leave a situation because they don't, they don't want to wait for God to work. Mm-hmm. Um, where there really is the capacity of of both people to grow and to mm-hmm. heal. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need we need discernment and counselors, other eyes on our marriages to understand that. Mm-hmm. Debbie, one thing that we're talking about here, a response to shame is to run mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, to want to flee. Mm-hmm. That's not the only response to shame. What are some other ways that people react? Well, I think that... As I mentioned earlier, that tendency to go towards perfectionism that we're in its if we put it in scriptural terms, it's a tendency to go towards works. That if I just get enough notches on my belt, if I just am spiritual enough, if I am this, if I'm that, I'm gonna do more Bible studies, we start ending up in this attempt to achieve. And if I'm good enough, then God will see me and other people will too, and they'll accept me. I also think numbing is just, you know, it's a way. And that would be, if you look at fight, flight, or freeze, we're a little bit about fight might be your perfectionism. I'm going to, or aggression. We start being passive aggressive. I hate to use labels, but we start being very critical and we start being aggressive and we start being um, very, very assertive and uh, we don't really trust God's process. And then when you look at freeze, that's kind of that numbing. Mm-hmm. I'm going into a zone. Um, I could be, you know, zoning out on social media or on Netflix, you know, or food. We see a lot of we see a lot of people numb out on food. Uh, we see them numb out on any number of things. I think this is where sometimes we see numbing out on pornography. They just go to, and that's a place where it's my brain's not engaged. I'm just 
totally into my body at that moment. So I think that there's multiple ways that we deal, we try to deal with shame. And not any of those bring us closer to other people nor to God. So if you've just described somebody that, that I know, or you've described my spouse, mm-hmm. how do I be an agent of healing in that person's life? I mean, I'm guessing you're not suggesting that we sit down and say, you know, what you're really doing, I think it's trying to deal with your shame. <laughs> That's not going to be effective. Not so much. Um, if you value the, that relationship, it if somebody had said that to me, I would have kind of you know, I'm rebellious enough. I would have been feisty and challenged them on it until God did the work in my heart. And I think that we can pray for and we can have empathy because there's something that happens when we understand what somebody else is going through. I can show up with empathy more than when I understand, and then that changes how I behave. And I think that that's what happened for me. I understood the pain that my husband went through. And so for me, it became, it was more important for us to be okay than it was for me to be right. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I could be compassionate and not shame him because I shamed him for years and decades, decades. Mm -hmm. I shamed him that if you did this, you would be better and you should do this. And it's that F word. I tried to fix him. (laughs) I tried to fix him. And that creates more shame. So we got to be really careful how we show up with people that we know they're in a shame spiral. That's where empathy counts. And so sharing your own story, being vulnerable, that's another way to connect with people. That's why I share mine. I don't relish being that open. You know, I love being authentic, but you know, it's a whole nother level when I'm talking about my own shame. So but hopefully it creates conversations for other people as well. Mm. Do you think in general shame plays out differently with men than women? Yes, I do. I'm not sure I know exactly how. I do think that shame for men, they tend to shut down and shut off. And women are often more emotional about it. So, but we we both have the same need is to be seen and be heard but that's our greatest fear is to be seen and be heard Mm, yeah and even when you describe that dynamic just a little bit in your own marriage it makes me think of how often we as as women feel it's our role to fix our husbands (laughs) you know I mean it's uh to fix them spiritually to fix them emotionally they're not good enough parents because they hold the baby wrong and without realizing it how we, their best friends, their companions, can actually be creating an environment at home that just feeds into that shame of, I'll never be enough. Um, we don't think about that very often. You're right. Well, remember one of the three tenets of what grows shame is judgment. And so when we sit from a place of trying to fix, that's judgment. Mm -hmm. And so rather than accepting who they are and how God created them and that, you know, he literally put us together. um, So not being in a place of judgment and that starts to shift things. And that's really hard. Yeah, it is hard, especially if I hear from so many women who are like, my husband's like, playing video games all the time and I just want him to grow up and I want him to take his job seriously Mm -hmm. and there's such this tension this balance of encouraging your husband of challenging him 
but not judging. Mm-hmm. Um, because most likely he's playing video games because of shame. Right, he's trying to numb out. That's that's the men's go-to is their, their numbing is that. Women tend to food or, you know, some of the social media pieces. And then you go on Pinterest and Facebook and Instagram and talk about shame. I don't have a body like them. I have more wrinkles than them. My roots look darker than theirs. Whatever, it starts to go. We have women have more body shame than men and that starts to affect everything than how we want to show up how we want to be intimate with our our husbands and so it, again you just get into that spiral so i i think that bringing it and bubbling it up to which i love the word you use authenticity you know being authentic helping other people understand so that we don't have to be held captive by it so I'm going to ask you one more question that I think most people don't associate with say I think most people don't associate with shame especially around sexuality. We talk so often about shame that comes from having made poor choices, from having abortions, even from having been sexually abused. But we don't often talk about the shame that comes from what you mentioned, judgment, mm-hmm. um, secrecy, legalism. And so we had a listener that wrote this question. I grew up in a church, and much of what I've heard on Job with Julie about the purity narrative is painfully familiar. I would have to say I had an exceptionally better understanding of sexuality than most of my peers, but still I was absolutely unprepared to deal with sexual temptation. My husband and I pushed so many boundaries so far, and I felt like we could never escape. After reading Rethinking Sexuality, I now see that I was trusting in self-discipline, which inevitably failed time after time. Those failures led to shame that isolated me, and I wish I could say I found a way to break the cycle before my wedding, but that's not my story. I wasn't aware of how that shame would extend into my marriage. I've spent a long time thinking our failings before marriage have doomed us to a diseased sex life. How do I begin to shed this lie? Well, I love the way that she put it the at the end, the shed the lie. Yes. And Satan's the father of lies. So mm-hmm. Satan has a foothold there. I just really see that very, very strongly, that that's not a, a life that God wants us to live at all. Mm-hmm. So I would go back to and looking at where the narrative shifted for her. Mm-hmm. So I'd want to go back and say, okay, so here you were before, and you were, you're human. You're all human, and you failed. And God puts, as far as the East is from the West, this is where forgiveness comes in. And so forgiveness of each other and forgiveness of ourselves. And because God forgave us, and I think that maybe talking to somebody about, yes, plan A is sexual purity. That's what God wants, you know, sex within marriage. And for those who didn't quite get there, that is not your that doesn't have to be your narrative for the rest of your life Mm -hmm. there's forgiveness there's an opportunity to almost reboot okay god so help us understand um, and forgive ourselves for that piece Um, i guess i just don't see that we have to live encumbered by that is there something else to that story that you think is really the piece there yeah you look like you have a thought on no your mind. I, you yeah. know for me some of this question is so encouraging because i see how this woman's thinking has mm-hmm. already been transformed mm-hmm. of being able to identify we we talk about authentic intimacy this purity narrative that a lot of christians grew up with mm-hmm. and yes while 
sexual purity before marriage and in marriage is God's design, we talk about the fact that none of us have perfectly walked that. Mm -hmm. And when we put our whole sanctification, our whole salvation on that one piece, was I sexually pure before marriage, we, we miss the forest for the trees. So the fact that this woman is already understanding that, that some of the legalistic teaching around sexual purity has messed a lot of people up. She's processing that already. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that why is that sexual sin is different than any other sin. Mm-hmm. You know, it's unforgivable. Mm-hmm. I de- as she said, I deserved a diseased sex life. You know, none of us deserve the goodness of what God has to give us. You know, we're all, we all experience intimacy and the blessing of marriage and the blessing of what sex should be by grace. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's some of what she's hitting on, mm-hmm. um, which to me is encouraging that she's even asking these kinds of questions. I, I totally agree. And I think one of the things to think about is that shame positions us into black and white thinking. And so we go from one extreme to the other, and we don't find gray middle ground. And so it's either the all or nothing. Yeah. I Just like you said, the purity purity narrative. And so when we look at that, it isn't about, you know, all or nothing. So most of us lived in that middle road there. And so to be able to accept and say, it wasn't perfect. Yeah. And I'm forgiven. Right. And I'm going to move forward here now. And I'm going to create what it is that God designed for me. Knowing that, that our own past, our trauma histories, and our shame responses keep us polarized. Mm -hmm. And that's what weighs us down. And so finding a way to go back into what God's creation is. And maybe, you know, that's this is the depth of the work she and her husband could do. They could find a whole nother level by, you know, coming together and talking about what this was like for them. Mm -hmm. And so you're right, the phrase diseased sex life just you know, I just wanted to go, oh, no, you, that's, that's a curse. You did yeah. that, you know, that was before Jesus came. <laughs> that was the fall there. You do not have to live under that. I love the fact that you're identifying sort of this black and white thinking. Mm-hmm. We have that before marriage. Mm-hmm. Like, did yes. we make it to the <laughs> altar pure or not? But I think we also have it after marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think almost everyone I've met, including myself, has a diseased sex life mm-hmm. because sin still plays yes. into it. There's yes. selfishness. Our mm-hmm. bodies don't work perfectly. Mm-hmm. Our minds uh, don't naturally just honor God mm-hmm. with sexuality. As we've talked about before, we yes. have all these pathways in our brain that mm-hmm. maybe were formed through things we shouldn't have seen or done or experienced. They get reinforced with the culture we live in. And so I'm finding, even in my own marriage, not to look at this as black and white of either we're doing it perfectly or it's diseased, but that we're constantly on this journey of striving towards how do we become whole? How do we honor God? How do we learn to love each other well? Um, and, and I don't think people talk about sexuality that way. It's either all good or all bad. Julie, that is beautiful. I, I wish that you could just say that again to all the, all the churches. I mean, that was just beautiful. And it reminded me that it's like sanctification. Mm-hmm. So sanctification, we didn't at the moment of salvation become all that God wanted us to be. We didn't, you know, before salvation and then after and we're there, boom, done. Mm-hmm. It's a process. It's a 
it's growing. And I love um, in the New Testament where it talks about doing from one stage of glory to the next. Mm -hmm. So not awful to good, but I'm already in glory. And that's what I would encourage her to go. You're already experiencing God's fruitfulness in having this, this life that he put together. And so allowing her to just relish where it is and just be in that moment. I think that this is where that unfair to compare Mm -hmm. you know we start looking around going oh well they're you know theirs is probably really good or you know they're doing well and look what I've got and I think that that again is the lie from Satan and it'll keep us from exploring and enjoying and really experiencing all that God has and planned for us and how he created us to be well how about you Have you allowed shame to position you to think only in black and white? Or are you on a journey of walking with integrity before the Lord, thanking Him for the victories and asking for His mercy in your failures? I'm grateful to Dr. Debbie Grubinick for her wisdom and for helping me answer some of your questions. If you'd like to learn more about how shame impacts your sexuality, I hope you'll grab a copy of my book, Rethinking Sexuality. You can find that at AuthenticIntimacy.com, along with more Job with Julie episodes, blogs, and resources to help you reclaim God's design for sexuality in your own life. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to having coffee with you next time on Java with Julie.